0: House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres.
1: The book is called Damnation Island, and the author is Stacy Horn, who's written a few books. First time on this show, um, Stacy, uh, welcome aboard.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So. Uh, you know, this, 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 uh, what I mean by I was grossed out was because I was listening and I, I see. so I put it on and I had no idea what it was going to be about. I didn't know it, what we were, what this was. Um, and this is um, about Roosevelt Island is what it's called today, but Blackwell's Island. And that was a place for the insane, I guess you would call it, like an insane asylum.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: Now, among other things, among other, but uh, the part that I was that that really freaked me out was because it's you you described the all of them taking a bath in the same bath water and how sludgy and dark and gross it was getting because uh, there was like 150 uh women that would one after the other get into the same tub of water,
0: yeah. uh the patients would complain about that you know over the decades and their complaints were ignored and so i wanted the reader to be very clear about how awful that was and it wasn't just a minor complaint but um, the this we're talking about the nineteenth century so there wasn't plumbing so in order to fill the bath they had to carry pails of water over and they just decided at a certain point that that was too much work, and the women were going to just bathe over and over and over and over in the same few bathtubs that were filled each day. And so I tried to describe just how gross that would be yeah. you know, by right. the 25th woman, because these are women that were coming over in all sorts of states. So... They could be diseased, um, they could have syphilis, they could have lice, they could have been playing with their feces. So by the time later women got in the water, it would just be thick with sludge and vermin and things moving around, and nobody would want to get into that. (laughs) Yeah, what's what's the point? Mm -hmm. What's the point? What is the point? Yeah, you'd you'd
1: come out dirtier than you went in.
0: And you were forced to go in, whether you liked it or not. So very a very calming, soothing introduction to life in the asylum.
2: Yeah,
1: that it really it really, but it it got my attention. Um, yeah, you know, and in in a in horrifying way, and it was. So why can, just jumping ahead to why was it ignored, uh, and why if they complained about it, uh, was it just because we're talking about insane or they figured unstable people like what was uh, don't we have a a a duty to at least treat them uh, more of a human give them you know a proper bath and towels well
0: you would think you would think it would be the more christian thing to do to treat them with kindness but let me just back up a little bit um the, the city bought Blackwell's Island in 1828, and when they bought it, they originally started with the best of intentions and to treat them more humanely than they'd ever been treated anywhere in the world before. At the time, um, Bellevue, which is now known as a hospital in New York, uh, also housed yes. the city's lunatic asylum and a couple of prisons and an almshouse. And as a result, it was terribly overcrowded and conditions were also inhumane, and so the city bought Blackwell's Island, which at the time was this beautiful pastoral island full of fruit trees, thinking, you know, they would build state-of-the-art institutions to replace what they had then, and people would go there and be treated with compassion, and and they'd be healed if they were sick, or they'd be reformed if they were being sent to prison, and they would come back to the city in better shape than when they were first sent out there. So... They really meant well. They even went down to Philadelphia to look in a new asylum that had adopted something called moral treatment, which was you know a revolutionary form of treatment at the time that started in Europe. And it basically—I mean, it sounds so like common sense now—but they said instead of putting them in straitjackets and throwing them into prison and doing treatments like bloodletting. Let's treat them, let's not restrain them, let's, not, let's treat them with compassion and kindness and feed them well, house them well, give them useful and satisfying things to do with themselves during the day rather than locking them in dark dungeons, and perhaps they'll get better <laughs> if yes. we try this instead. Yeah. And unfortunately, um, uh, they just made mistake after mistake after mistake. First, they underestimated how many people they were ultimately going to commit to that island um, every year. Um, the Lunatic Asylum, oh God, I'm forget, forgetting what their average daily population was. I think it was around maybe 1,500 on any one day. But um, it ended up being... Excuse me?
2: I said, good Lord. Oh, well, what was What were they anticipating?
0: Well... Nobody really knew how many people were suffering from mental illness um, at the time. And unfortunately, you could get committed for things uh, that are considered less serious today, like if you're having anxiety attacks or suffering from depression. But also people could get committed if they were just kind of eccentric. Um, Husbands could commit wives. Families could commit troublesome members of, of their family and it ended so, so it was overcrowded and then the city um, did things to save money they, the other big thing they did was underestimate just how expensive it is to care for um, people suffering from mental illness and they did things like to save money they took convicts from the workhouse which was prison for people convicted of, of relatively minor crimes and they took these convicts and then had them working as nurses and attendants in the asylum.
2: Wow. Uh, yeah, so you know that it had to be rife with abuse if they were using convicts.
0: Oh, it was terrible. It was terrible. The, the It just kept, kept getting worse year after year after year. But I have this great quote from Charles Dickens, and it was only three years after the asylum opened, and he wrote about how it had that madhouse air, the moping idiot, the gibbering maniac, and I'm quoting him, these are not my words, (laughs) Um, (laughs) with his his hideous laugh and pointed finger, they were all there in naked ugliness and horror. Wow. So things just kept getting worse and worse and worse. They they did things like, um, my my favorite way to illustrate this is um, when the asylum got crowded, they started building other buildings and two buildings they um, built one was called the retreat and one was called the lodge and that's where they housed um, the most violent patients that they had and in rooms that were barely humane enough to sit one woman they would put two or three or four and then they would lock them up around six o'clock at night and they would not unlock the door until the next morning and sometimes they would murder each other in these rooms and I do actually write about a murder in the, the retreat but Nellie Bly um, is fairly famous um, she was a 19th century investigative reporter and she feigned mental illness in order get, to get committed to the lunatic asylum on Blackwell's Island so she could write about it um, and you know from the inside and what it was really like and she published a series of articles that caused a huge sensation but i read in her articles how her original intention was to get housed in either the retreat or the lodge because they are famous as being the worst but once she got there and she was put in like the best the nicest part of the asylum and that was so horrible i mean if you read her articles they're just they they're chilling and so it was so bad in the best part of the asylum that she decided that she would not go into the retreat at a lodge, because it
1: just wasn't worth jeopardizing her life. <laughs> wow. Uh, you know, and so yeah. you have to think about that next time you stay at a lodge or a retreat.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: In the back of your mind. Uh, that, that's it. Well, and, and so Nellie Bly, she actually um, had, um, uh, didn't she uh, really cause the end of the asylum?
0: no <laughs> no <So laughs> unfortunately that, no. that didn't do it like, no. i mean uh, wow no that was 1888 and it, uh, they kept going i mean they kept going as bad and uh, at 1895 the state took over the care of the of the insane from new york city and they spent more money and things were better for a while but it, it eventually devolved because it, It really is an expensive thing to do well. It's very hard to do well. And I don't know if you you remember this, but in the 1970s, there was an expose about an institution here in New York called Willowbrook. I don't know if you ever saw it, but of all people, this was in the 70s, Geraldo Rivera.
2: Oh, boy. There we go.
0: I I know. but But you're going to be surprised. Like... He no, started I know. out his career so differently.
1: Yeah, because back then, I remember this, actually. I remember um, this actually made him a very legitimate journalist at the time. Um, he exactly. Was, he was up for awards, and they were really, this is before all of the stuff. Al Capone's yeah, fault. Yeah, and, and all that yeah. satanic panic and all the stuff he did after. But the original, I remember No, it, it. was
0: he. He did a very worthwhile thing. This is in the 1970s, and he snuck in with a camera. And I, I will never forget that. You, you see him walking. Well, you see what the camera sees as he walks down as he walks down the hall. And it's a long hall, and along the walls of each um, side of the hall are people sitting in, in, on the ground. Most of them naked, rocking back and forth in their own urine and feces. It's just the worst possible thing that you can imagine in the most devastating horror novel and it's real this is really happening and I, that I, I led to that. yeah that led to a wave of, of uh, asylum closings and the idea that we should house them in smaller group um settings but that was even more expensive and, and now i think they're mostly on the street or in prisons and the only thing that's saving at
1: least some of them is that there are now drugs available that weren't available then. So um, now get back to the mindset then in the 1880s. So the average person or citizen outside of the asylum or the retreat, um, what was their general? What was the general consensus in, in population about these 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 women and and the insane, do do, do, do people just... I'm just trying to capture how they felt.
0: Well, a couple of things. One of the things that um, caused part of the problem was the city thought, okay, we're going to build an asylum, um, and they built two penitentiaries, um, two, two prisons, one called the penitentiary, one called the workhouse, an almshouse for the poor and a hospital to serve uh people who can't afford health care. And so they thought putting all these people on the same island was humane, but unfortunately it it, it reinforced this very destructive association between these groups of people that persists to this day. I mean I'm sure it already existed to some extent, but it really It really made it this idea in people's mind that these these three groups of people, the poor, the mad, and the criminal, were all essentially one and the same. Poor people are criminals. Yes, the poor people, the, the mentally ill are to be feared. Poor people are basically criminals in disguise. And together with the convicted criminals, they were all... T- to some extent guilty of something and they belong together and away from the rest of us. So it, it lessened the sympathy for things that happened to them. It- that probably the people in-, in the lunatic asylum got the most sympathy of-, of any of the groups sent there. They were seen more like innocent victims. But unfortunately, even after things like Nellie Bly's expose, there was a huge you know, amount of outrage and the the budget for the department running the island um, was raised a little bit the next year, but not enough to make any fundamental difference. And then everybody forgot. And things like these, these exposés, you know, kept coming up again and again and again. I wrote about one that took place in 1880. There was like a series of just terrible deaths in the insane asylum. And one example I gave in the book of just something that happened that just is hard to imagine. But they took a pregnant inmate and they put in, in the lunatic asylum, put her in a straitjacket and then put her into solitary and then just left her there and while she was there she gave birth in this you know, while in a straitjacket alone. Yes. Yes.
2: By her
0: so, exactly, exactly. Oh my God. And I know, it's just, who are these people who does this? So there was a Senate investigation, and I went through 900 pages of testimony, and it just (laughs) kills me that they they talk to doctors and nurses and former doctors, former nurses, all sorts of people, but they didn't talk to one single patient.
2: Um, And at
0: the end of the 900 pages, they didn't make a single recommendation about how to fix it.
2: That's the Senate for you. Oh, that, uh, that's
0: well, absolutely that's, horrifying. Well, that's the thing. Like, I, I, I've said this many times. Like, even as I was reading this, I'm thinking, we are no better now. I mean, right. not a day goes by that you don't hear about something terrible happening in our own country. And we all acknowledge, oh, my God, that's terrible. And then nothing nothing changes. Nothing gets done
1: right and and it's always the same you know we'll do a senate senate investigation or congress and and a whole lot of stuff goes on and nothing changes wow yeah so who who gets um held responsible for something like this eventually or do did anyone ever really uh pay for for all of these inhuman beha- you know treatment
0: no, and I, I, you know, I didn't want to knock people over the head with some of the the connections I made reading, uh, excuse me, researching the story. But one of the things I kept noting, you know, I, w- I was going over annual reports from each of the departments, um, you know, overseeing each institution and looking at the budgets and how they spent their money. And one of the things that I discovered right away was that they were starving everybody. They were not feeding anyone uh, nearly enough. Yeah. I mean, just basically enough to keep them alive and and doctors were pointing this out even the wardens and the superintendents were pointing this out you know we you have to give us more money this is not enough to properly feed you. no one's going to get better you know with a diet like this and so i for one of the examples of one of the people sent to the penitentiary i i told the story of uh... the reverend callie who actually was once a missionary to the island who started a home for children um, as an alternative to Blackwell's Island because Blackwell's Island was a death sentence for children. The mortality rates for infants on the island went between 80 to close to 100 percent. You send a baby there, it dies. Mm -hmm. So he started this home to to have another alternative so they could not die. And he ended up being sent to the penitentiary for a year Because because one of the children in his care got so sick um, that he took his he took them to the hospital and they accused him of starving this child even though there was a lot of evidence that that was not true and and none of the other children in um, in his care were in this state he was suffering from something but they didn't really know what um, so and i it was like the one time i said and i just come out and say in my book like so he goes to jail for this one kid and none of the commissioners or anyone running this asylum ever went to prison for the decades-long famine that they had on the island.
2: Wow. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, who do you tell when the corruption is at the top? Who do you tell?
0: Well, and and even better, like the, the workhouse um, and the penitentiary, the wardens themselves also noticed one thing that I noticed in my research was that Only poor people went to prison. The wealthy, the affluent, just almost never were sent to the penitentiary or the workhouse. And they would say that in their annual reports. They would say, you know, we can't help but notice the police justices are only sending poor people to us, and we know the affluent commit crime, so what's the deal here? And the Women's Prison Association sat in uh, in the courthouses to see what was going on, and they wrote a report saying that you know, the wealthy were rarely brought in at all, and if they did, they, their cases were either dismissed or they were you know, gi- you know, given a fine that they could easily pay and sent on their way.
1: <laughs> well, see, we're in the wrong job. <laughs> yeah, we're doing it all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like we, we keep taking the wrong choice, making it. Uh, so, so what happened to the people that died? So, like when all these you know um patients i guess i'll call them were dying and that uh what they do with the bodies and didn't the family of these um patients uh say anything or do anything or like i'm just trying to figure out what the th- there was just no hue and cry or nothing going on
0: mm, again uh, whenever like an article would appear uh through some investigative reporter's efforts, there would be an outrage, but then it would quiet. And in terms of the bodies, um, that's another sad story. Um, the, uh, there's, one, there's a few heroes in my book, but one of them is um, the Reverend William Glennie French, and he was an Episcopal missionary to the island for over 20 years. And he wrote annual reports that were very frank, so I used his, his annual reports a lot. But he talked about the fact that the people would cry to him all the time because they wanted a Christian burial. And they knew that, especially the people in the almshouse, that's where um, people who were poor and couldn't afford a place to live, they would go to the almshouse. And they knew that they would likely die there. And unfortunately for the people who died on Blackwell's Island, for many of them, um, what what would happen after they died was their bodies would be given to medical science um, for education and, and research, and then their remains would be buried on Potter's Field on Hart Island, and 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 they would cry to him, you know. But they they he has this one terrible thing in his his annual report where he talks about how they're so afraid that. Their body will be buried there on Heart Island, and, and they buried them in trenches. So uh, I forget, oh, I think my it goodness. was like 100, 100 adults to the adult trench and 1,000 babies and children in the baby's trench. So their big fear was that they would be buried in a trench but at the bottom, and if their relatives managed to get enough money to, to have a, a decent burial for them, it would be too late; like they'd be at the bottom and beyond recognition if their friends wanted to remove them.
2: So they were just mass graves.
1: Yeah. Wow. Um, so, so how did this finally end, or what what drove the hospital to be closed?
0: Well, my book ends in 1895, and that was because it was a fairly hopeful year. The city was starting to acknowledge what went wrong and coming up with ways to fix things. And as I said, the the lunatic asylum was taken over by the state. The state took over the care of all the mentally ill in New York, and they did a better job at first. Um Oh, and I, one thing I also forgot to mention, uh, the island was managed by a department that went by uh, a number of names, but ultimately the name, the Department of Public Charities and Correction. So the same men who were responsible for charitable institutions were also responsible for the prisons. And that was not a smart idea. So in 1895, the department was divided into two, the one for public charities and the one for correction, uh, both of which exist today, although the, the one for charities goes by a different name. But the Department of Correction is still the Department of Correction. And they decided that the penitentiary and the workhouse were just so miserable that the only thing to do would be to tear them down. And they bought uh, Rikers Island with the idea that they would build a new state-of-the-art penitentiary and workhouse to replace what exists on Blackwell's Island. And so they did in the 1930s, but within a few years, it was just as bad as the prisons on Blackwell's Island. And that's because the problems, the things that made them the terrible institutions that they were, had really little to do with the buildings and more with the criminal justice system, which is largely, unfortunately largely unchanged and in many ways worse today.
1: Well, this is a r- fun story. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. Um, wow! It's like I, I, it's it's just it's a fascinating but terrible, terrible story. That just wherever I looked, it was bad. I mean, like I, I for instance, I found that in originally the the, the groups that were targeted for, for for incarceration were surprisingly women and the Irish. But then I saw how, over time, that got transferred to African-Americans. And by the time Rikers Island was built, um, the, the African-American population in prison was on the rise and the Irish was on the wane.
1: I guess uh, we were getting used to the Irish by then. <laughs> <laughs> I, t- I don't, yeah. you know. So what, what, what was the most, um, I guess, horrifying or most upsetting thing that you learned about the whole prison uh, during your um, research?
0: Well, every bit of it was upsetting, and but I think what was most upsetting when, was when I learned how little things had changed. I, um, as I said, I, I ended my book in 1895, and so I wanted to have an epilogue, so I re, I researched Rikers to see what that was like. And I read this Justice Department um, report on how teenagers are treated on Rikers Island. And so first, (laughs) that was upsetting, teenagers on Rikers Island, Mm because I had read in the 19th century how they sent children to the penitentiary. I mean, I found records of eight-year-olds in the penitentiary. And they raised the age to 14. And to hear that you know, you know, a hundred years later, it's only been raised to 16, and we're still essentially sending children to prison. So that was upsetting. But then I read these terrible stories of how they were being brutalized, and I included one brief one in the epilogue where this teacher describes how they pulled a kid from her classroom, and then she started beating him on the, in the hallway, and it went on for a long time. Like, a guard would walk by and say, oh, have you pepper sprayed him yet? And they go, oh, no, go ahead, be my guest. And he'd lay oh, out the pepper spray thing. Yeah, right in front of his face. Because uh, he mouthed off to one of them when, uh, when he said to sit up straight or something like that. I mean, something ridiculously minor. By the way, I say that, but... Life in Rikers Island, I'm, I'm not excusing this kind of brutality, but it's horrible for everyone. The guards, It's. It's. I think it does something to them as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. Like a terrible
0: place all around.
1: Yeah, I would imagine that would affect everybody involved because it becomes a yeah. way of life. I mean, if you're there five days a week as a guard, that's, that's a big part of your yeah. life.
2: You know. yeah, uh, yeah, you know, and, and I can testify to that, Stacey, because I work in the corrections field and I have for about 21, 22 years. Yeah. But, uh, and, and I, I know the horror that we have come from. It, sadly, and I'm willing to admit this on the air right now, I, I kind of see a swing going in the other direction back to those type of conditions because they are closing down all the mental health facilities around us. And so where do they put the mentally ill people but in jail? Yeah. And and we simply don't have the, the tools to deal appropriately with them. So what do you attribute this to with your research?
0: Well, that's why I try not to demonize the guards. Like, again, I'm not condoning this kind of brutality, but I read another thing, and this was recently where, um, what was it? It was... Oh yeah, it was. It, I read an article in the Times about a locked ward in uh, uh, an asylum, though it wasn't called an asylum. I think this was also in the 70s, but it was a, a locked ward for violent patients only. And then they would like throw in guards and nurses, you know, in that same locked facility, and then just leave them, and they they were on their own with worse possible patients who were not in control so you know nobody's the bad guy here but they were on their own and they had to defend themselves against these violent people and it was just a no-win situation for everyone Mm-hmm. Wow. so that's what i think of when i read about the prison i'm thinking again <laughs> i have to keep saying it's not that kind of brutality but they they were also in a no-win situation
1: Yeah, it's a a tough place to be when you're researching and writing a book like this because you don't want to put blame or demonize a group of people like guards, but at the same point, you have to say what happened. You have to explain the
2: truth.
0: Yeah, Um, exactly.
2: And and, and what you described um, with the, the young man that they were struggling with Um, speaking as a lieutenant, as a supervisor, that's inexcusable. If you don't have to use that type of force, then then why do that other than just for sheer, you know, sheer sadistic pleasure? Yeah, aggression. Yeah.
0: Um, Yeah, Yeah, that's a a whole other thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, How did this, you know, when you're doing this and going through the book, uh, I'm sure the process took a year or two or who knows. Um, How did it affect you? Like what is it what changes does it make in you yourself?
0: Well, now I'm an advocate for criminal justice reform, public health reform, mental health reform. I don't know how effective an advocate I'm going to be, but I I recognize that things need to change. I'm afraid that though Yeah. Go ahead.
1: No, no, I was just going to say do you think that the public is more receptive to it now. Do you think that um, if a report came out now about a prison uh, whether it be insane or asylum or a, a health mental health place, um, do you think if something like um, these stories um, came out now or, or Nelly, Nelly Bly and stuff like that, if that was to come out now do you think that the general public and do you think our Senate would actually change things?
0: No. No, I think that the kind of paralysis that affected them in the 19th century is only worse now. And the only thing I can think of is, is the kind of leaders that are just so rare that would galvanize some sort of movement, some sort of progression. I mean, we've had them in the past here and there, but it's a rare human being that can, that can move a nation to act, yeah. mm. to put out the kind of money that's needed to address some of these problems. I mean, I don't see, yeah. like, like, Trump talks about bringing back asylums, and it's not that the idea of asyl- asylum in and of themselves are a bad idea, but they are extremely expensive. I mean, ridiculously expensive to do well and to, to not repeat what we did in the 19th century. And when we talk about asylums, we're talking about lower-income families. We're not The wealthy don't get sent to asylums. They can afford the best care that money can buy. So when we're talking about sending people asylums, we're talking about poor people. And I certainly don't see, in this political climate, that kind of money being spent on mental health care for the poor.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, and, uh, you know, and, and did we, did, do we have any good examples of asylums? <laughs> and I mean that yeah. like, good, you know, good question yeah because this is a bad one so do you have any ones that worked or do we know of any that were successful in their treatment of, of
0: um, mentally I am very very quick trying to look because I read this wonderful article <laughs> by someone who promotes oh here it is oh. improving long term psychiatric care bring back the asylum now he is again talking about yeah, you know, not what we had on Blackwell's Island. And right. he gave two examples of ones that were good but were very expensive. Here we go. He says a Joint Commission accredited state psychiatric. Oh, he doesn't give the names. He oh. he talks about one in Michigan. Oh, here here's one in D.C. Um, St. Elizabeth's Hospital. But he says the cost is three hundred twenty-eight thousand per patient annually. Oof.
2: Oh my goodness!
0: Well, well, that's the thing. It's very, very expensive, and,
2: and and that's and that's the sad thing. All the good facilities are so outrageously priced that only the wealthy can afford them.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why bring back asylums. You know, I think if we did that, we're going to get what we had in the 19th century, and the people that work there are only going to be the people that can you know afford to t- or are willing to afford.
2: Uh, excuse me, willing to
0: take
2: the pay that we can afford to give them. Yeah. Yeah, And, and, and let me make... ...the best of the best. Let me make this comment and get your take on it. Um, l- let's tie this back into corrections. You've got these people in the government that are making all these big decisions having to do with corrections and mental health, yet they've never served a day as a law enforcement officer, so they don't exactly know what they're legislating. Yeah.
0: Well, in, in New York, they're actually talking, um, de Blasio has committed to closing Rikers in 10 years. The complaint about that is he won't be around in 10 years, so he's essentially kicking the kid down the road, and I tend to agree. But at least a movement has begun to close Rikers. So that's something. But the, I, I, I recently wrote an op-ed about this saying, you know, essentially what I said to you, you know, closing Rikers, you know, that's not really the issue. You know, it's not the problem. Is not in the buildings. It's in our criminal justice system. So I talk about you know reducing or eliminating bail, and also for me, which is now my new thing, is I think you know we have basically standing armies in every city, town, state in America going after um, the crimes of lower income Americans, um, but we don't have standing. Um, armies in every city, state, and town, going after white-collar criminals. And I think if we had, and and their crimes, I would argue, are equally destructive, if not more so, and Mm -hmm. more far-reaching than, you know, one guy, you know, selling marijuana, for instance. And if we, for instance, if Rikers was still with as many, you know, corporate executives and people guilty of bank fraud, it would never become what it is today.
1: Right. Right. We have to go
0: after, yeah, we have to go after everyone equally.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's been a problem. All all criminals equally. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, (laughs) it's true. I think that, uh, because we're seeing that now in a lot of the news reports we get, uh, you know, people uh, getting, uh, I don't know, it's over-policing, you know, for silly, uh, just minor crimes. uh, Yeah. And they're getting beat up for it, you know. Um, yeah. It, it just... Uh...
0: And we're not, you know, investigating or t- or arresting or prosecuting white-collar criminals like anywhere near the extent. I mean, it's just it's so uneven. It's ridiculous.
1: Do you think that's just because um, maybe in general the police don't think, or even the public... Don't think of the white collar crimes as bad because they don't have, they don't see it. It's not, it's not something that affects them in their day to day life, where it's breaking and well, pot and all that. You sort of exactly. Exposed.
0: Well, it, it's not. Right, you're right. It's not written about. It's not sensationalized. It's just. It, there's been no focus on it the way there has been for you know close to two hundred years here. Uh, If we had television shows and police forces, you know, constantly investigating and reporting on these crimes, people would be more more aware of them and how it's affecting them, because it is. Right.
1: And so many of the, um, you know, fraud and white-collar crimes don't end up in jail time if they do get caught. (laughs)
0: It just kills me. It just kills me. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I want to. Uh, I don't know which publisher would be interested, but it, I would love to just spend some time researching, like how many deaths, for instance, I could attribute to white collar crime. You know, to you know, to crises in the economy that led to people losing you know their homes, their health insurance, or how many corporations withheld information about the dangers of their products, which ultimately led to death. And I could just. Show you know this is these crimes are destructive and lethal.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's just not. It's just not done in the same way, but it's still happening.
0: No.
1: Yeah. Is that sort of the main point of the book as well? I mean, do you, is that sort of what you want people to get out of the book, or was there something else?
0: Well, it didn't start to be. I mean, my I, I've always been interested in morbid stories, and and definitely. Interested in the stories of people that something terrible happened to them and it was forgotten and no one ever answered for it. It's why I was drawn to the uh, writing a book about the NYPD's cold case squad. I mean, the idea that, excuse me, all these people were murdered and and the murderers got to go on and live their lives and nobody ever was held accountable. And so I knew that something terrible had happened on Blackwell's Island. So you know, I, I just, I seem, I, I. I was drawn to the idea of resurrecting these stories of these people who were treated badly, who who something wrong happened. But I I wasn't doing it to preach to anyone, And, and I certainly didn't think that I was going to go in there seeing all these parallels to what's going on now. So when I wrote the book, I just... Except for a sentence here and a sentence there where I just it would be irresponsible not to point out that, that something is still happening today. But again, it's only a couple sentences in the whole book. But I decided that I would just tell the story of what happened and for the most part let the reader draw their own conclusions.
1: Yeah. Well that's kind of the best. Well point. I for one appreciate it. Yeah. That's, that's really the best way to go. I let, um, yeah. Th- you know, not to tell people how to think, but give them the information and hopefully they're able to, you know, put it together. and. Um, yeah. And and, and
0: and nobody likes to be lectured to.
1: No. And, it, you know, it, it's an easy way to get um, cast into a category now, too. You know.
0: Yeah. You know, be safe. And I try, to, I try to limit... Um, portraying anyone as the bad guy, because as I said earlier, you know I, I understand the paralysis that happens when things go bad, and you just feel overwhelmed, and you feel like nothing you're doing is going to help. So, uh, I, you know, since that's me today, I wasn't going to point my finger to anyone that was like that then. Yeah. And I just, you know, there, every once in a while there was somebody that was a bad guy, and I point that out. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, they're just a bunch of people in over their heads.
1: Did it ever make you wonder, but, you know, some of the people that were working in the, um, in the asylum itself, um, how they could just uh, do some of the things they do without it affecting them? Like even if they didn't speak I, out, um, just like, you know, say say the people, you know, putting all the ladies in the same bath over and over and see them get in the, the dirt and as you said, feces and all this stuff going on and you, but as an attendant, how could it not affect you when you got home or later to think of what you're doing?
0: Right. That's what makes me think of the guards at Rikers. I mean, this is your job. so how how can it not damage you too in some way to do it and so yeah I, I read about some nurses who were just plain tyrannical and evil just like you know some of those guards on rikers who just went over and they crossed the line it's a different thing but for most of them i you know i thought they were just above the poverty level themselves for the most part and this was the only job they could get and it was terrible
1: for them too. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I just, I, I, just, I just try to put myself in their mind, the mindset of, of going through the motions of, you know, leading the um, uh, inmates or whatever what you would call them, the patients into um, yeah. these awful situations.
2: Like it's um,
0: yeah.
2: Like well, it, it does affect you.
0: Yeah. It, it, it does.
2: Yeah. I mean, you actually get, you you have to get callous. If you're going to stay in the industry, you've got to become callous. And, and perhaps that that's where I struggle because I am, you know, I believe that I'm a compassionate person. And, and I care for them as, as human beings. But sometimes we're faced with situations where you've got no other choice but to, you know, react in a certain manner. Yeah. Yeah. Oh,
1: no, of course. Yeah. You know, of course. I mean, that's yeah. you know, you're drawn into that situation. I'm. I'm just thinking in the asylum when you're. Um, I, I don't know what you call them, caretaker or if you're um, a nurse or what you are, and um, you know, just putting people through. You know, like making them get into the the really nasty bathtub, making them do things. That's just you wouldn't do yourself. It's just kind of outrageous. Mm-hmm. And these people are supposed to be um,
2: sick. No,
1: yeah. yeah. Criminals. That's yeah. Sort of, so, you, you know, it's a different situation, I think. Uh, slightly different. I mean, you know, they're in a yeah. place for a reason.
2: But I, Well, let, let's look at it this way. And, and like like Stacy kind of alluded to, um, you have certain people that will take on a job like this because they, you know, They have the sickness themselves and they enjoy, you know, submitting people to, you know, inhumanities like that. And then you've got the other type that come into this industry with all the best intentions in the world. I want to help these people and I'm going to heal people. And you're faced with that horrible, harsh reality that this is what it is. So, you know, to my way of seeing it, you've got two people or two types of people that get into this industry.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of the people that were the, the ones doing the physical labor, like holding those women in the bath, those were the workhouse um, convicts. They were oh. not nurses. Mm.
1: Oh, so they they weren't even, they weren't like trained professionals.
0: No. Trained professionals came much, much later. They started um, a, a nurses' academy, oh, God, I'm forgetting the year, but in the 1870s. And those nurses initially went to the hospitals on the island, not the lunatic asylum.
1: Wow. So, so you didn't even have um, really professionals running these facilities or, you know, doing the main part of the work.
0: Well, that kind of career was relatively new at the time. Um, they called them alienists back then, um, people who had a specialty. <laughs> what? <laughs> Did well, you watch the show?
2: Uh, no. Uh, I, I, I read part of the book, so. Wow.
0: Yeah. Well, that's exactly, that's the world that they were living in at the time. It, it, there was not a lot known, and nurses, you know trained nurses per, were unheard of until towards the end of the 19th century.
1: And so, so you think the trained nurses now don't make much of a difference?
0: I know less about current mental health facilities than I do the nineteenth century. Yeah, but I'm sure they must.
1: Yeah, I would hope. At least some extent. Yeah. Well, I would hope. I would hope that they have a better uh, working knowledge and a just an overall compassion as being a nurse. But
0: yeah. Well, the people, I, I can't imagine who was applying for these jobs because I remember reading a complaint from one of the superintendents who ran the asylum saying that we were paying our nurses. I mean, they called them nurses, but they still weren't trained nurses. He said they were paying them less than what women would make um, hired as servants in a wealthy person's home. So they're, they're going to take that job over this job if they can get it.
2: Oh, wow. wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah. a
2: private nurse yeah. make, the, makes more the pay is good. not
0: a nurse, just a servant in, in a home yeah. like a cook or a <coughs> house cleaner yeah. they were making more than the nurses on Blackwell's
1: Island so it was a great paying job <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: wow and you didn't even have state retirement
1: no that's, you know, wow um, well, this has been very interesting, it's been a very uplifting show and
0: <laughs> Sorry. We, no, it's it's good.
1: We've had we've had writer and cat butler, Stacy Horn. <laughs> so you're a, you're yeah. a cat butler. How's that?
0: I, I have three cats, and and <laughs> they rule the roost around here. It's like me taking care of them. I feed them whatever they need. I do. I'm their servant.
1: Yeah, it's, it's funny how the animal becomes kind of in charge without yeah. the, without the responsibility. <laughs> yeah, but it, but it comes with good medical insurance. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you you get everything you want. Well, uh, it's been very no, it's been very interesting. I think uh, fantastic. It will have the book that we already do actually. It's already linked up on our website damnation oh, island and of course and um, of course you can go to uh Stacy Horn's website and I believe it's just stacyhorn.com, isn't it?
0: That's it, that's it, yeah.
1: That's it. So we have all that linked up and uh, the book is definitely worth reading or listening to if you have bad eyes like me. Um, (laughs) Thank you very much for for taking the time and talking to us today.
0: Well, I had a very great time in spite of the subject. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Uh,
2: Thank you, Stacy. To find out more about our show, guests, or listen to a previous show, visit our website at www.somethingweirdmedia.com. The mission has been completed. The end. By George, he's got it! It is the end.
0: How dare you? If you're lying to me. I'll be back.